Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Mets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball hit out to the left, waiting is Jones, the Mets are the world champion. Here's the one-two pitch. Check him out. Steve has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground towards first. Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run. Mike Piazza and the Mets lead three to two. To left field. Floyd. And after winning rough shot over the National League, the Mets have a timeless show for it. 2006 National League East champions. Here's the payoff pitch from Familia to Fowler on the way. And it's in there. Strike three called. The Mets win the pennant. The New York Mets It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Monday, July the 1st, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at MetsMarizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia. And you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, Short work week, and uh, we come to you with a podcast on a Monday, day off, before the Mets take on the Yankees in a two-game Subway series, and then uh, they have their their weekend series 
uh, this weekend. And then uh, the All-Star game. And the Mets have three All-Stars, Jeff McNeil, Pete Alonzo, and Jacob deGrom. So they'll have some representation at uh, this year's All-Star festivities. And and away we go. Uh, Joining us in uh, just a little bit. It's been a while since we had him on. Uh, contributor to Mets Miners, Mets Memorized Online, Michael Mayer. Michael's really uh, plugged in with the organization and, and does a great work over at Mets Memorized Online, so get a chance to catch up with them. I actually spoke to him this weekend in uh, between the Mets Braves series, so uh, you'll hear that segment in uh, just a little bit. So where do we start here? A lot to unpack since the last time you and I spoke. Uh, last time, of course, was in the midst of the whole... Uh, Mickey Calloway, Jason Vargas, Tim Healy of Newsday fiasco. Uh, we had uh, you know some minor league uh, dialogue with uh, Jim Mojo Morrison. So uh, we had that long extended podcast about a week ago, and a lot has happened since. Of course, after that podcast, the press conference where Brody Van Wagenen came out, and then the Mickey Calloway press conference, and then the Mickey Calloway second press conference. And I'm not going to sit here and rehash what happened down in Philadelphia. And coming into the action, uh, well, tomorrow, coming into tomorrow's action, the Mets only have two teams in the National League that they have a better record than, and that's Miami and uh, San Francisco. And although they're only six and a half out of the wild card, which really speaks to the parity of the National League, there's been no indication that this team, specifically on the road and, and, and against elite, you know, the top three, four teams in the league, have been able to put any kind of sustained, I'm not even saying winning streak, but period of time where they win series consecutively to close the gap uh, on 500 and then uh, move uh, forward past that, which is really what you wanted to see on this last road trip, which they ended 3-8. and eight. So by all uh, purposes, and I think if you put anybody in the Mets organization, including Brody Van Wagenen on, uh, in front of the mic, uh, which right now he's declined to do other than talk about their signing of Matthew Allen, their third-round pick. Uh, a big a big signing, and, and we'll get to that. Uh, they'll, they'll say that, you know, I think if they really were being honest, they'll, they'll, they'll acknowledge that they're looking towards 2020. And that's a huge disappointment because this is the third year in a row the Mets went into the season feeling they could compete for, the, at the very least, a wild card. And we're faced with, looking towards the future, which uh, is a conversation we've had now three years in a row. And three years in a row, I've said the same thing, that uh, I still feel that ripping this team to the studs, I think anybody ripping a team to the studs, with the exception of teams that are in dire financial straits, I'm talking Houston, uh, when they weren't even having their games televised in their own city, type of regional network uh, austerity type of situations, Really, ripping teams to the studs does only one thing, and that provides job security for the general manager and saves ownership a ton of money. So it's funny a Mets fan base that's angered about the owners and the owners not spending money would endorse such a move, which would fly in the face of of what really makes you know what really sets them off. I mean, it's really the exact opposite of what they want. Yet a lot of people are calling for it. Where we start, you first have to start with the manager. And I've been a big Mickey Calloway supporter in the sense where I felt since day one as a new manager coming into a tough spot, he really hasn't gotten the benefit of the doubt that his predecessor got in situations where you know he didn't do much different in terms of in-game management. I think Mickey uh, has been very uh, unlucky. 
Uh, and I kept saying that the the players, if the players in the clubhouse and the preparation of the organization and the team on a daily basis is there, then why would you remove the manager? And I said that after the Miami debacle, the sweep, why would you remove the manager and decide to uh, move forward uh, with somebody else who may not be the full-time replacement, who may fool you into thinking they are the full-time replacement Think Jerry Manuel, 2008. You get yourself locked into another bad situation, and now you sign the guy to a two- or three-year deal, and now you ha- you're back to the same scenario a year, year and a half down the road, and the beat goes on, and you really don't want that. You, you want to give Brody Van Wagenen the time to do an extensive managerial search, and I felt that you let Mickey ride out the season. And who knows, if things turn around, if he shows progress, if the team makes maybe a comeback of some sorts, which is unlikely. Maybe you think twice before letting him go in the final year of his contract, but a lame duck is never a good thing. So either way, it was very unlikely that he would be back in 2020. Now, that's all before some of the other reports have come out over the last week. Now, I am not going to go and rehash my whole issue with how the media has treated Mickey and how I feel like they, and I said this on Twitter, the whole you know, you gotta, you got to say you're sorry. When you say you have a private conversation with the injured party, in this case being Tim Healy, and we talked and we've moved on, I think I'm sorry is in that. To have to have the guy grit his teeth and say I'm sorry is, is to me a public flogging, a way to embarrass him. The organization, i.e. the owners, not i.e. the owners, uh, Jeff Wilpon, they were very sensitive to this criticism. They've always been going all the way back to when uh, the firecracker incident and the bleach inch incident back in the early 90s when Fred Wilpon essentially threw Vince Coleman off the team uh, for that incident with the firecracker and, and the young uh, kid, the baby, I think it was. They're very sensitive to this, to this stuff as well as they should be. I mean, this is a little bit different because although Tim Healy was threatened by Jason Vargas, nothing really happened. And sometimes I think a lot of these threats are macho posturing. Regardless, you shouldn't make somebody feel like that in their place of work. And it sounds like there's more to them than meets the eye. And like I said, I think the media has been really trolling for problems with that t- with this team, with, with their coverage, specifically how they talk about the team on Twitter, where they feel it doesn't count. And I saw some tweets out there, and I think one was really, really well said by our friend Paul Lebowitz. He's been on the program, used to work for uh, FanRag. And he said a lot of these things that are said on Twitter are things that were said maybe at the bar or in in private, and now it's out there in the open for everybody to see. So it changed the dynamic. But regardless, if ownership wants you to – say something, you have to salute those stripes, and you have to do it. And it sounds like Mickey Calloway didn't do that. And he went rogue. And if you listen to Andy Martino, Andy Martino has indicated that there seems to be a disconnect between Mickey and the front office in the sense where they don't get a feel about where he's going. And that's not good. Now, is that because they've created that, leaving him out to dry here? I don't think so. When your bosses ask you to do something and then you go off script and you really are perplexed about why someone is going off off script, that's a problem. Mickey says things that don't help him. And, and I think he, he has struggled from day one with 
protecting his team, managing the media with the rote cliches, and giving them some meat to work with. He's done a bad job of using the media as an asset or as a tool to help motivate his players, although I don't know if in this day and age that's something that is even feasible anymore because I don't know how today's player takes to being criticized publicly, something that was done in the media many times in the past in various different sports in this town. So he struggled with all those, and I think a lot of times his uh, conversations come out clumsy. He gets set up by the media, and he takes the bait. He gives them very easy, simplistic quotes to make fun of him on, and he really doesn't do the organization any justice. But the thing that if I were the the team, or if I'm Mickey, what really has has sunk him is you need to communicate with your bosses and you need to manage up. You need to manage the media, but I think in some cases – there may have been, and it sounded like the owners were in his corner. Jeff Wilpon was in his corner up until this incident. But once you turn and you start to take your poor communication or you turn on your bosses, that's hard to come back from. You usually never come back from that. And you already had a boss, one of them, Van Wagenen, that didn't hire you. You had an owner that was in your corner but needs to win and is under a lot of pressure and an organization that's known to bow to media and public pressure. So to me... Mickey Calloway, even he may not survive this season, and I thought it was a shoe-in because I didn't think things would get ugly. And although they've been losing, and they lost seven in a row prior to their win against the Braves, it, they're still competitive. This team right now, and this leads me to Van Wagenen, this team has an historically bad bullpen. As a matter of fact, I don't think I could have predicted this. The last, I think I saw this stat on Saturday. Three of the top four bad bullpens in Mets history have been in the last three years. The other bad bullpen, 1962. That tells you a lot. Now, there's a lot of bad bullpens throughout the league, and there may be a lot of reasons for that. But even a league average bullpen with this crew has them in contention. Now, they have warts. They're not a perfect offensive team. And the starting pitching, to me, uh, although the metrics on fan graphs indicates it's a top 10 rotation in all of baseball, and Zach Wheeler and Jacob deGrom and Noah Syndergaard are top 25 pitchers, pretty much, depending on which advanced metric you're looking at. It hasn't felt the same. The starting rotation has let them down. If you really want to look at expectations coming out of spring training, the only pitcher who has really lived up to what you would expect would be Jason Vargas, who's given you pretty much what you would want out of a fifth starter. Actually, he's been a lot better than... Most people thought uh, it was a, a pitcher that some thought, uh, you know, sometimes myself included early on, couldn't get through the batting order more than once. So those disappointments coupled with an offense that was built to be an improved offense, but not a powerhouse, an offense that would score enough to uh, support a very good top echelon rotation and a bullpen that's improved that should be able to navigate six to seven outs with two closers in Edwin Diaz and uh, Jerry's Familia, and some decent arms in Seth Lugo and Justin Wilson and Robert Gazelman. So none of that happened. Uh, and you've had this historically bad bullpen, and this is now the third year in a row with two GMs. That and, and let's face it, the Mets haven't built a good bullpen maybe since 2006. That's a long time. That's, that's 12 years of not-so-great bullpens. So it leads me to Van Wagenen, who now, in especially in national circles, has become under fire. And I've even seen some people suggest that maybe it's time to consider moving on from Van Wagenen. Not so much the media, that's fans. 
And I laugh at this because not everything is bad in this organization. I cannot give Brody Van Wagenen a grade going into the All-Star break. His grade is incomplete. I'm not sure I could grade him through at least a full year on the job, which would be in October. And I personally don't know if I could give him uh, or even give you an indication of, of, of how good he's doing. So maybe the middle of next year when he's got a couple of drafts under his belt, a full uh, season with the big league roster, and then uh, potentially it looks like a winter to revamp the coaching staff and put his own little spin on that with his own manager, which he elected to keep Mickey Calloway. But I suspect coming into the job, especially as he took the job, what was it, late, mid to late October, and with an owner that liked the manager and, and endorsed the manager early on, uh, it wasn't a situation where he was going to overturn the apple cart and, and be able to really uh, you know, go out there and get someone who would do a thorough search as well as build a team that late in the process. That was one of the downsides where the Mets did not when Sandy Alderson uh, essentially resigned uh, due to his health issues back in, in late June of last year. When they didn't move on the search then, and they were criticized for that, I think a lot of that uh, stunted to a certain degree their ability to fully plan and go into 2019 with uh, the best possible uh, structure in place. A little bit of an excuse, but look, let's face it, it's reality. With that, Van Wagenen has brought in some really top uh, lieutenants, Al Baird, uh, Jared Bannon, both from the Red Sox, a uh, really top, uh, respected statistical guy in Gutridge, Adam Gutridge. Uh, it's hard to, to evaluate because, again, uh, with some of the new way of looking at uh, players, some of the new technology with the virtual reality that they're bringing into the organization, it's too soon. And you don't have a lot written about it. I think part of it is because a lot of those in the media haven't been able to get close to really do an in-depth look of what are the Mets doing stuff differently. Maybe they don't want to share that. Uh, and more importantly, they've been too focused on the negativity surrounding the manager and the team and really writing uh, a narrative around how dysfunctional they are. And that's been my problem. They haven't really dived into, uh, you know, what is Van Wagenen's way of running an organization? Maybe he's not allowing them, but I don't know if they've tried. I find it hard to believe that they've tried. So I can't give Brody Van Wagenen uh, uh, any kind of grade. I can tell you that the way he went about his first draft, and this will be one of the things we'll talk at, talk about with Michael Mayer, was impressive. He was able to snag a Scott Boris client in the third round, was able to do it by getting him to sign for well above slot at $2.5 million, but uh, not high enough where they lose a future draft pick. He was able to still fill out the draft with college seniors and maybe some component players, or who knows, throughout the rest of his uh, his picks. Now, granted, Brody's not picking you know, all these players. He has a scouting director and those underneath him, but he's the GM. He's setting the tone. And believe me, uh, they didn't pick Matthew Allen knowing who was representing him and knowing how difficult or how long the odds were of signing him uh, if it wasn't for Brody getting on the phone right before that pick and, and feeling out the kid and seeing what the situation was. That's where having an agent in the front office and someone who's who's used to going for it and being a salesman and and really pushing for those stretch goals is a lot different than Sandy Alderson, who at times um, was a very conservative, old-school general manager. I think some have compared him to an actuary. It's almost like you were dealing with a lawyer. I mean, that's where Sandy is. He was a lawyer. So uh, I don't feel that it it's all bad. And I think that's a I think that would be talked about more if the team was successful. 
Now, where do they go? The real first challenge for Brody is this trade deadline. This team, and if he continues, and I think this will be a very fair question for him when he does finally speak about the current roster, If the mantra is win now and also win the future, which means put the most competitive team, the way I read it, put the most competitive team out in the field now without sacrificing for the future, then some big decisions have to be made, specifically about Zach Wheeler. Jason Vargas could come and go. You know, he has an option at the end of the year, a team option, and uh, all indications are that the organization is not happy with him. So I would expect him to go sooner rather than later. And Todd Frazier, to me, uh, you know, do you really need to save money on the salary? Maybe the, the, the ownership group wants to do that. What can they get from him? You know, I don't know if you can fetch a heck of a lot for Todd Frazier. The, the league really makes it difficult to trade guys in the final year of their contract unless there's a real bidding war somewhere in the fold of, like, Aroldis Chapman when he's a free agent who was an elite, elite player. Now, I don't know if Zach Wheeler falls into that, but he's certainly a starting pitcher that you could debate how good he is. You know, there are metrics that put him, like I said, in the top 25 of all of baseball and, and in some cases put him in the top 20 if you go to fan graphs. The eye tells me he's not as good. I looked at a tweet from his brother, Adam Wheeler, and I think Adam actually said it best. What's the difference between my brother last year and this year? Bad defense has killed him and a juice ball at home runs because a lot of his peripherals are still the same. I don't know if I can confidently say that if you give the ball to Zach Wheeler in a big spot against a big team, he's going to come up big for you. I go back to that Yankee Stadium start that day game in the doubleheader. I thought he came up small. But again, a situation where bad defense and a juice ball probably did hurt him that day. So not all of that's his fault. But the real key will be, if the Mets don't want to re-sign him, uh, or they're confident that even if they do lose him, that what they get for the qualifying offer and a draft pick is enough for them to turn into some kind of asset. Uh, they need to be right. They need to go out there and make a deal for one of these rental players that really nets them something. One of the problems with this organization has been they haven't been able to even net component players out of some of the deadline deals they made a couple of years ago when they got all those relievers. Yeah, Nagosik is here, and we'll see if he turns out. He's an interesting prospect. Handhold has not really produced anything. Uh, Gerson Bautista's gone. Uh, you go down the line, even from a standpoint of developing in the organization, they haven't even been able to take failed starters and develop them into decent relievers. That's really the disappointing thing when it comes down to uh, the Mets, is that they haven't been able to build a bullpen because they haven't even been able to import component players for some of the, uh, you know, assets that they've had at some point throughout their, uh, uh, you know, throughout the last few years. Can they turn Zach Wheeler into something like Sandy Alderson turned Carlos Beltran in the last year, his contract, into something? Now, I'm not comparing a future Hall of Famer or a potential future Hall of Famer to a very good starting pitcher, but that's where I give Sandy credit. He held back. He knew how to play a little bit of poker there and really push up to the deadline. He turned R.A. Dickey who was a knuckleballer coming off of Cy Young, but maybe in today's day and age wouldn't be as valued as he was. And he turned them into Noah Syndergaard and Travis Darno. So he was able to turn a couple assets into some real good assets that have helped them get to the World Series. So that will be Van Wagenen's next test, and we'll see where he goes. Now, the challenge here also lies is if the Mets want to win next year, 
There are a bunch of free agent pitchers out there. But I ask you, and maybe this is something we'll examine later on because we don't want to spend too much time. I want to get to Michael Mayer. If you have three guys in DeGrom, Syndergaard, and Wheeler that are top 25 starting pitchers in baseball, that's a good threesome to build your rotation around. Why would you want to bring that break? The, why would you want to break that up? Additionally, if you want to keep Wheeler, why not try to sign him now? Now, maybe he doesn't want to sign now, but there's a risk as players have learned going into free agency. Wouldn't you want to try to get this deal done before the season's out? Maybe you go into the All Star break and start having conversations and say, "Hey, what is it going to take to sign you?" And if the guy says, ah, "I want to go to free agency," maybe that'll influence whether or not you want to deal him. Or, you know, just hold on to him for the qualifying offer. Get the draft pick. I mean, draft picks are nice, but at the end, prospects, especially prospects that might be able to help you in the next couple of years or those that have some potential high-end upside down the road are a heck of a lot better than a college kid or a high school kid. So we'll see. As much as I love the Mets draft, you'll never know what any of those guys will turn out to be. So in the end, Mickey's gone I think he might be gone sooner rather than later because if this thing continues to get foolishly ridiculous, um, they may be forced to let him go, although the team is still competing, so I'm not holding my breath on that. Van Wagenen's grade is incomplete. You still have to give it some time to see the overall organization because there are some good things happening. You saw that with the draft. And then the first real big test comes the next couple of weeks as we head to the trade deadline. How is he going to address his big chip? And how is he going to address that chip and still build the starting rotation if they plan on competing in 2020, which, when he had his introductory press conference, that was the focus and that was the goal. Has that changed? We haven't heard from Brody Van Wagenen. And I don't think it should change because, like I said, you still have a lot here, and I'm not going to let an historically bad bullpen dictate why a team should— shouldn't dictate why the team should be ripped up. You rip up a team off of an historically bad bullpen, shame on you. That's ridiculous. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll take a quick break. When we return, Michael Mayer, Mets Memorized Online, will join me. Let's hear what he has to say about the state of the Mets organization. We'll be back with more right after this. You know, I, well, I don't think it was on draft day. I knew kind of after there was, uh, you know, some things we put in place. And, you know, ultimately, you know, my goal is to make it to the big leagues and make it here and stay there. And so uh, once uh, kind of the situation was put in front of me, it was too good to pass up. And so, you know, I was just... I was just thrilled kind of hearing about it and stuff like that. What was the feeling like when you actually put pen to paper? Uh, it's unreal. I mean, I was just, I don't think I could get a smile off my face. And uh, even here, just kind of watching and uh, looking at everything here, it just makes me want to be here and, uh, you know, kind of help the team and you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm really excited. No, I wasn't going to rule out anything. I wasn't going to rule out uh, any possibilities or anything like that. You know, I was just, uh, the one thing they stressed was to stay calm and just kind of keep uh, keep your cool. And so that's one thing I uh, I tried to do. I was actually on vacation at the time. So I was in, uh, we just won the state championship. It was uh, on that on that Saturday. Uh, the draft was the Monday. So, you know, if anything, I was just enjoying uh, uh, vacation time with my family. Just putting it on, I mean, it feels great. And uh, just being here and uh, looking at everything and seeing all the players and, uh, you know, I- We're back and uh, joining us uh, from Metsmerized Online, Mets Miners, our good friend Michael Mayer. It's been a while. We haven't talked to him since spring training. And as we head to the uh, end of the first half, he'll be joining us. Mike, I uh, wish it was on uh, better terms here with the Mets, but, um, you know, how you doing? And welcome to the program. 
Yeah, thanks for having me again. And yeah, like you said, it'd be much better if we were talking about the Mets winning instead of them being now 10 games below 500. But still good to talk. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Mets uh, and, and Michael and I are, are chatting here uh, as the Mets head into their uh, finale with the Braves. They just lost uh, their seventh in a row, a tough loss out at City Field on uh, 69 weekend. And um, I'll start here because. You know, now the theme is changing. Uh, throughout the season, I've been talking about, you know, ways this team could stay afloat and then get to 500 and then begin the, the creeping towards the wild card contention and then maybe what they could do to add uh, to this roster. And, and that's just quite simply not going to happen. But I don't think everything, when you look at it from an organization standpoint, and that's why I wanted to bring you on this weekend, let's talk about the organization standpoint. Because uh, when Brody Van Wagenen came on board, he talked about winning now and winning in the future. And winning now uh, is not always easy. Um, and and I know we'll get to Cano and Kelnick and all that stuff, and you don't want to sacrifice the future. But what they pulled off, I think, with the draft, with Josh Wolf, with Brett Beatty, with the signing of Matthew Allen, which was, uh, I think, somewhat unlikely if you had, someone had told you going into the draft, uh, I think that's a big step towards – building up the future, building up the farm system, and putting some assets into this farm system that, quite simply, they haven't had in quite some time. Oh, for sure. I think if the Mets were winning or even playing around 500 more, um, what they did in the draft would be getting talked about more because what they did was pretty impressive to be able to get, essentially, you're talking like two of the top 15, 20 overall guys in the entire draft and that's not including Josh Wolf who was a top 40 guy too so they got three of the top 40 prospects in the draft um, to be able to do that is extremely impressive and boosts a farm system that needed a little bit of boosting specifically on the high-end pitching side so yeah I mean it's they had one of the better drafts of anyone in Major League Baseball um, obviously took a risk with the Allen thing, but I uh, I don't think they, they were going to do that unless they were sure of signing him. But now that they finally got it done, they uh, they got quite a quite a trio of players to add to the system. And I know the draft is about those three guys, and they, they took a bunch of college seniors after the, the three picks, and, and who knows how those guys turn out. But um, did they find some maybe component players out of that? Are there guys that you like? I mean, they've signed, uh, you know, and I don't have the list of exactly how everybody's uh, shaked out here, but or shook out, I should say. Uh, but it seems like they they signed most of these guys, and it's not like it's complete garbage after the top three. No, they they got some interesting senior signs. Um, one of them is the seventh rounder, uh, Luke Ritter from Wichita State. He's a second baseman. Um, He's pretty pretty solid all-around hitter, solid defensively. Um, I think he's got a chance to be, I mean, like a major league bench piece. Um, so I mean, that's a and then Jake Mangum, who was their fourth round pick. I mean, he he was one of the better just all-around hitters uh, in college this year, and one of the better hitters in Michigan uh, Mississippi State history. So, and he's a pretty good defender. Um, I think he's a he's a decent prospect. He's pr- he's pretty old, so they'll have to be w- aggressive with him. 
and kind of move him along pretty fast. But I, I think he's a guy that has a chance to be a major league um, depth outfielder. And uh, there's a couple other guys they, they drafted that have some serious power, and we'll see how that plays out in the minors. But it, it, it wasn't just a wash after the first round. They, they did get a couple of guys that might end up being major league depth pieces, which, which is good after – after you get to those those rounds, that's kind of what you're hoping for is some of those guys to not just, I mean, you're not realistically hoping for them to be superstars. You hope to kind of get your 23rd, 24th, 25th man out of those picks. Yeah. Is it fair to say, I mean, I think the drafting got better under Sandy Alderson maybe, and I mean, maybe it's biased because you got 2016 with Pete Alonzo, but those first, 2011, 2012, 2013, I understand Brandon Nemo. Uh, you've got a Seth Lugo or Robert Gazelman. I mean, they've, they've been certainly helpful. But those first three drafts when Sandy Alderson took over, really when you start to look at the team over the last couple of years with depth, I almost want to point to those drafts not yielding very much at all if you go up and down. And, and I guess – you know, it's easy to focus on Cano. It's easy to focus on Edwin Diaz and Kelnick. And, and again, we'll get to that. But the evaluation of Brody Van Wagen, it can't just be about that trade, just can't be about this season. It's about how is he uh, building a better overall organization. And, and let's be fair, um, I think Sandy's record with that in terms of the draft, and it's not all Sandy Alderson, of course, uh, it, it was very spotty until maybe the later years because now you see McNeil – Conforto, uh, you know, Alonzo, you know, so on and so forth. No, yeah, I think I think um, Alderson did have some strong drafts, particularly the last couple of years when you're talking about first, second rounders. He had some success. I mean, even the Mets in general last year getting um, Kelnick, who, I mean, obviously it's not going to be with the Mets, but they used his um, value as a prospect to get something in Diaz that they valued highly. Um, obviously that hasn't turned out that way, but that that's still, it was a good pick for them. Um, and there's their second round pick from last year. So I mean, which Richardson is um, been a plus this year in the minors His ERA isn't great, but he's, he's a guy that's got a great strikeout to walk ratio and he's only 18. So um, they've, they've done well drafting recently. Um, obviously, the second part of that is you can't just draft well. You have to develop well, and they they have a new guy in place this year for that system in Jared Banner, and um, it'll be curious to see. That's something you have to kind of see results play out over a period of time. It's not something um, you can just jump on, on after one year. So it'll be interesting to see how this continues to build out and if the Mets are still – going to stick with Brody long-term even after what, I mean, has essentially been a disaster for the first year. Yeah, I have Michael Mayer with us at Mike Mayer MMO. I think it's hard to reboot the organization again. Uh, I mean, the GM, look, he's going to get a lot of rope here. I mean, I think it's not just because uh, his relationship with the owner, Jeff Wilpon. You don't bring in a GM uh, year one uh, and because of, and let's face it, there was a tweet earlier today, top top four worst bullpens in Mets, Mets history, three of the four the last three years, and then the other one's the 62 Mets. Think about that. You take uh, 
you take bullpens from the, the 92 Mets, the 93 Mets, teams that were bad, you stick them with this team, we're probably having a different conversation. So it's, you know, it really comes down to one component. The starters have been very disappointing, but they've been passable. And I think the offense is, it doesn't get enough credit. I know that it, it still falls maybe slightly above league average or league average, but I think there's a lot of interesting pieces, even component pieces there. It's the bullpen. It simply comes down to uh, the guys he signed haven't worked out, and uh, none of the depth pieces, none have provided very much. And, and I think we get to Seth Lugo, maybe time to think about, not because of just the struggles, because of the way he's being used, whether or not you know, he needs to be considered for the rotation. Yeah, I mean, even with a like you said, even with a mediocre bullpen this year, this this team would be right in the wild card hunt if not um, have a chance to contend for the division. So, and whether I mean Mets fans and some people like some of the moves they made, but they still haven't worked out. I mean, Wilson wasn't very good, and now he's hurt. Familia's been hurt and awful. Um, Avalon. Had, was bad and they misused him and then got hurt. So I, it, it's it's pretty tough to imagine. I mean, it's a string of potentially bad moves, but also a string of pretty bad luck too. So like you said, yeah, I, you can't just hit the reset button after one year as critical as I've been of Brody. Um, it's tough to just give him that one year and see what happens. And not just that, it, he also brought in some other guys in the organization, like I said, with Banner and Albert Bard and Adam Got Rich. And it's pretty tough to imagine them kind of hitting the reset button after one year and not seeing that play out some more. Um, so they're, they're in a tough spot. They really are. And it's certainly going to be interesting to see what Brody does at the deadline this year. Yeah, absolutely. And, you're starting to see them implement some of the analytics that maybe were lacking before. I mean, what moves like uh, Brooks Pounders, uh, Mazza, who you uh, uh, interviewed. I have to think they're trying to bring guys into the organization for depth, uh, maybe Walter Lockett, that on the surface you may say, oh, there's nothing really exciting. J.D. Davis, I keep naming guys as I'm thinking here, uh, because they're putting their own little formula, their own little uh, brew together. Uh, to kind of uh, look at the players a little bit different. Yeah, I think, I mean, they've certainly gone out, even like with Font, they went out and got a guy. They're trying to, they've tried. They haven't just stuck internally um, for pieces like that with Pounders and Font and some other guys they've picked up. They've tried to build depth. Unfortunately, a lot of those guys haven't worked out. Davis offensively has worked out for them. So, I mean, that that ultimately right now is looks like probably Brody's best move was getting him, um, even though I, I didn't like the trade at the time and I still don't, don't like it that much. But Davis has at least provided some offensive value and they've they've needed someone to play third because Lowry's in the missing person. So, Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, the concern you always have is, and this is where I was going in the open, that, and I've listened, I, I kind of, part of me feels for Mickey Calloway because I don't think he's a bad guy, and I think you pointed out he's had some bad luck. Uh, this was not a banner week for him, and I think his, his weakness in 
being confident with himself in communication with the media, uh, trying to – he's always hugged the line between trying to stay positive, protect his players, and being open and honest. He's never really done a good job with that, and then I think you really saw – uh, everything you know negative about that kind of way about about managing the media go awry. What my concern is, and I don't want them to fire him just for the sake of firing him. I'd like the full time replacement to be the next manager. Uh, but which with a seven game losing streak, if and things are getting ugly, uh, you don't want some of these young guys to develop bad habits. You still got guys like Rosario developing and Dominic Smith and. McNeil and Alonzo are such positive, good guys, uh, especially, you know, how much energy they bring. And they could potentially be a duo that could lead this team uh, now that David Wright's not around. I worry about a bad environment really spoiling these young players. You know, you saw maybe some of that in the early 90s with guys like Jeff Kent and bad situations were bad fits. And then you trade those guys and they go on to do good things somewhere else and, uh, I worry about that. You don't want young players that are in a bad situation to go bad over that. Maybe that's why you would fire Mickey, uh, perhaps as early as uh, as next week. I don't think they do it before the Subway Series, but the All-Star break looks like a time that this possibly could happen. No, yeah, I agree. I mean, I've been pretty critical of Mickey, um, but I also realize that he's been in a tough spot. I mean, every – whether his – Open moves have been right or wrong this year. They've they failed, and he just hasn't had anyone he can go to in the bullpen. So that's again that's more on what Brody did this off season than him. But like you said, at at some point I think it gets to it comes to a head where you're in the locker room and there's just so much negativity around um, whether that's right or not from inside and from outside. You just you come to a point where there has to be a change there and there has to be a new voice. And I mean, at this point, it's clear that Mickey isn't going to be the Mets long-term manager. So why are you waiting? Why are you keeping this lame duck manager in there? Essentially? Uh, like you said, I, I only think negative stuff can come out of that. And um, quite honestly, I think probably they were, probably should have fired him a while ago after the Marlin series. I think that was kind of when it was expected. And then when it didn't happen, I think that's when stuff has started to snowball since then with the harder questions from the media and Mickey kind of changing his tone with the media. And then as we know, that really came to a point um, this week and it's, it's unfortunate to see that that type of stuff happen, and hopefully the Mets can uh, rebound from that and have a good second half. And I'd, I'd like to see it with a different manager, quite honestly. Yeah, and 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 do you think internally is there anything that could happen internally, uh, whether it's Riggleman, uh, Rojas, uh, and I and I think this is a tough call because this is becoming a tough media base for the uh, the Mets. I mean, it, it, I don't want to say it's getting to the Knicks level. Knicks is a tough beat. Um, that media room could be a real uh, shark tank. Uh, the Yankees are going to get a lot of passes no matter what happens. That's a tough situation, but they've built enough equity where it'll be a long time before that gets to be a shark tank. This is a shark tank. Uh, it's a tough group. 
And uh, they got to be right. And I don't know if anybody internally or first time is the right move. Now, that leads to, okay, then it's a Joe Girardi, a Buck Showalter, a Dusty Baker, which may be against some of the new wave ways of thinking that Brody Van Wagen is trying to do, um, which is a front office that wants a ton of control. You saw that with the uh, Jacob deGrom situation where – you know, he's essentially telling the the uh, training staff, get him out of there. Uh, and I don't have a problem with that, but uh, I have a feeling some of those veteran managers may. Yeah, I I seriously doubt that the Mets end up with any, essentially any of the guys you mentioned. Beyond them wanting to control, you're also talking about guys that want money. And Callaway's pay, getting paid through next year, and I, I don't see them adding a high a high uh, salary manager to it um, to the point this year I've mentioned a couple of times on Twitter that um, if it was me, I would go with Rojas. Um, they brought him there to be the guy that kind of brought the analytics from the front office to the field, to the players and stuff. And I think that's the type of manager they need. Uh, he's got a ton of experience managing in the Mets minor leagues. He knows a lot of these guys, has good relationships with a lot of these guys, um, bilingual. Um, He's just – and for me, they essentially have two options. It's either – assuming they go in-house for an interim, which is pretty much the norm, you have Rojas or Riggleman. And I'm just not a fan of having Riggleman be the guy just because he's been that guy before. Um, There's – little to no chance that Riggleman ends up being the manager long-term. So why, why are you going to waste half a season evaluating that? Uh, I think you bring in Rojas and evaluate. It gives you a chance to see if he's going to be able to handle New York. So that that would be my, that's a good point. That's an excellent point. And you you know what that's reminiscent of is when they brought Bobby Valentine up from Norfolk AAA in 96 after they fired Dallas green. And he spent uh, the last six, seven weeks evaluating and he came in. He was only on a one-year deal after that, uh, so he was a bit of a lame duck. And and you know we know how that turned out. But you have to be right. See, Brody has to be right. And I, I don't think it'll be too hard to find somebody that'll connect with the players if you find the right guy. I don't think the players hate Mickey. As a matter of fact, uh, what you learned uh, with this whole incident in the clubhouse is they're probably more uh, on Mickey's side in the media, I, I think Mickey's had a hard time manage. Well, certainly managing up with his new boss. Uh, it sounds listening to Andy Martino that how he handled that press conference is he basically went rogue, which is not good when your bosses are surprised about what you do. Uh, and the fact that a Martino is describing the front office uh, or as the communication or the feeling that there's a disconnect between Mickey and the front office, that's not good. That makes me feel like, you know, and we knew this could happen. It was a kind of a, a shotgun marriage. So you really need to be right. So if it's Rojas, and, and maybe because he's that liaison between the front office and, and the field, they already have a good feeling of him. But that person coming in has to be able to handle this beat. They have to be able to handle those post games and all the stuff that goes with being the manager much better. Mickey admitted it was a tough for him last year. Uh, and I'll say I didn't like Terry Collins. There was a lot I didn't like about Terry Collins, but he was able to manage that very well. And it was one of the main reasons why he survived seven years when he was pretty awful 
when you really look at his in-game moves, probably just as bad, if not worse, uh, if you want to look at him in comparison to Callaway. No, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's that's what I was saying with the Rojas thing. Is if they think he has potential to be that guy and he's one of their options that they want to look at long-term, I mean, why not give him two months? There's no better way to evaluate him than to see him with the New York media for two months and to see how he deals with it. Um, and to see to see how he deals with the front office, because this is obviously what is going to be for not just the Mets. I mean, like you said, that, this is the trend in baseball now, is that the front office has more and more control over the day-to-day things between the lineups and bullpen use and stuff. So for me, when they named him as the quality control, that was always my thinking was that they had him in line. So I know a lot of people mention Riggleman, but to me, Riggleman was just this experienced guy that would help out Mickey or Rojas, considering they, Mickey didn't have any major league managerial experience before last year. And while Rojas has a kind of minor, minor league experience, he doesn't have any major league experience either. So I think, I, I think, like I said, I think that's the route you go, and that gives you also the best chance of potentially finding your uh, long-term manager too. Michael Mayer, Mets Miners Online, Mets Miners, uh, we're catching up. We're really looking at the organization and where the Mets have to go here. Uh, we brought up Jared Kelnick, and, and, and it's frustrating. Kelnick is doing everything to make you think he's – remember the comparison we talked about was Mark Kotze, and he's looking more Christian Yelich in the minors right now than Mark Kotze. But when I go back to that deal, I don't know if you could have possibly gotten Diaz. Forget the Cano portion, which was – essentially Jay Bruce and Swarzak, and you could argue now that maybe it was better to keep those two guys and not have Cano, although I don't know if in the winter that's a really fair assessment when with the kind of season Bruce was coming off of and the clumsy fit that maybe there was with, with Bruce on the, on the roster. Uh, you have Diaz, a guy who is uh, arbitration eligible starting next year, um, You know, not a free agent until 2023, an elite closer, and – I don't think Dunn is going to come back to haunt the Mets as much as maybe Kelnick. I also don't know the Mets, forget Cano, could get Diaz without giving up a caliber prospect like Kelnick. So the real debate is not how bad that is, whether it was worth it for Diaz. And here's the other thing I'll throw at you, Mike. If Diaz straightens himself out, why couldn't you, even as early as next year, get back a pretty good package for Diaz if you wanted to unload him and, and reload with prospects for him. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think there's a good chance that Diaz strings it out. Maybe he's not 2018 Diaz, but I think he's a whole heck of a lot better than we've seen in 2019 Diaz. So I, I, I think he's going to straighten it out. And like you said, say the Mets try to retool for next year and they stink again by June. Um, at that point, that might be the time where the Mets look at trying to trade him. And I, I do think you would be able to get a couple of good prospects for him. And to get to the Kelnick thing, I think, to me, the bigger issue with that is that the Mets had just drafted Kelnick that high. Uh, some people had seen him as a potential five-tool guy. And kind of the timing of it, too, was – that you're going out and getting this closer, this potentially elite closer, 
and you're giving up one of the top prospects in baseball. I mean, he was a top 60 guy at that time, and he had just been drafted. Now he's a top 25 guy um, a year into his career. But you were doing this at a time where your team wasn't finished. You didn't know that you actually had a contender. Because when teams generally do these types of trades um, to get elite um, relievers, it's kind of as a finishing touch. Like, oh, we have this playoff team, potential World Series contender. Now we're going to add an Araldis Chapman. Or now we're going to add an Andrew Miller. Um, these teams did that to teams that were already very good. So th- that was kind of the thing that was off to me. And then the Mets didn't, in my estimation, finish the offseason. They still needed to add pitching depth, which they didn't, and which has obviously come back to haunt them. So I, I think overall that's the, one of the bigger things with the Kelnick-Diaz thing is that it was it was a weird timing for it to happen. And they just didn't, in my, you don't give up that value of Kelnick at that point in time for Diaz for that team. Right. Michael Mayer, Mets Morales Online, uh, fair point there. Uh, let's get to Zach Wheeler. A couple directions you can go. You trade him, and I really have to say, if they trade him, they can't be trading him for middle relievers or you know low-level prospects. Uh, that's why I don't think they'll ever be able to get a deal done with the Yankees because that's what the Yankees' mo is. What a lot of these uh, deals they try to make for players. I understand he's a free agent, but if you're a contender and you need an arm, Houston, the Yankees, whatever, you know what? Do you want to play the value equation or do you want to win? And I think those teams should be more in, in, in the winning mode, similar to what the Cubs did with the bad trade in the vacuum for Aldis Chapman. Uh, and I think the Mets should demand that uh, of Wheeler if he continues to pitch well. Now, he's been inconsistent. Uh, personally, if you don't get that kind of deal, uh, I would hold on to him. i give him the qualifying offer. Who knows if he takes it? Free agency is a risk. Maybe he does. Uh, if not, you get yourself a draft pick, and you continue to build with the mindset, you know what? You go out, maybe you could uh, re-sign him, and, uh, and I'll, I'll make it a two-part question. So, A, do you agree with that? Uh, B, uh, even if you do deal him uh, or keep him, uh, do you go out and offer uh, Zach Wheeler a, a multi-year deal? Because it is certainly a risk uh, to invest in him with his health history. Yeah, I, I certainly think I've seen some stuff on Twitter that seems to push towards that the fact that the Mets would only get a middling prospect for Wheeler, which I think is wrong. Um, his ERA might be high, but the rest of his peripherals still look pretty good, and he's still going to be one of, if not the best um, starters available via trade. So I still think you're going to end up getting a good prospect for him, or a good close to Major League ready. So that really comes down to what the Mets are would prefer. Would they prefer a a higher-end prospect, but that's lower in the minors, or would they rather get a piece they think might be able to help them for next year? Um, if they do keep him, I'm definitely giving him the qualifying offer and with the intent of trying to work out a multi-year deal with him. I would sign, I would try to get him back. I mean, after this year, you, if he leaves, then your starting depth is even worse, and to also have the possibility of Vargas leaving after this year too. So um, you, you can't, they don't have enough. I mean, I know Anthony Kay's in AAA right now, 
David Peterson's in double A, but you still need to sign a starter for next year. So I, I think the upside of Wheeler would certainly be worth um, signing him to a two or three year deal. I would seriously consider, and I'm not saying this after three bad outings this week, putting Seth Lugo back in the rotation. I've been concerned about how he can't go back to back. How the, the you know when he was really good, you were using him for a day, a couple of innings, and then he was down a day or two. That's really not the kind of reliever that you need. Uh, can you start to build him up, uh, put him in the rotation, maybe a post Wheeler trade? Uh, your thoughts on that? Because I think that's a big key here about whether or not you want to re-sign Wheeler. You may need to find out what you have there in Lugo. And you, you still have the, the partially torn ligament, which I'm sure is uh, in play here. Yeah. He, I, I don't think there's any great answer for that, for Lugo. Um, because he has been very valuable out of the bullpen. But like you said, he's also a guy that is more of a like two inning on Monday and then a couple of days off and then two more innings on Thursday. Um, so you have to have a guy that can handle the bullpen, and you also have to have other valuable guys in the bullpen that you can go to almost every day. And obviously that looks worse when you, you don't have any of that in the Mets bullpen. Um I, I think you kind of have to, if the Mets are going to kind of cheap out next year, uh, they let Wheeler w- walk and they need a starter. Uh, I think L- Lugo is probably one of your best options that you kind of have to stretch him out. So it'll be interesting to see, say, the Mets trade Wheeler at the deadline to see what they decide to do with Wheeler. Maybe that makes them think, oh, we should go out and um, – give him some starts the end of the year to kind of evaluate where he is on that. So, yeah, I mean, they, they've only used them on zero days or back to back once this year. Um, and so they don't see that. They don't see him being as that possible reliever. And he's been best on two days rest this year. I mean, uh, on two days rest this year, he has held opponents to a 506 OPS. So, like we're talking about, that's his bread and butter pitch Monday, come Thursday. So, you the Mets really need to decide what they want to get out of him and where his strength is going to be going forward. And I, I kind of depends on what they do with Wheeler. Couple of quick things here before we wrap up. Could you see a scenario where maybe they? Go, Thomas Nito's starting to hit a little bit. I, I really like him behind the plate, and I think defense behind the plate and the pitching staff does better with him. Uh, I wonder if there's something to Ramos struggling behind the plate. Because you could see a scenario where Nito is the catcher. They move Rosario to center field. I know that's a much lengthier conversation. And somehow Dom Smith uh, gets comfortable in the corner. I think I think we're going to see Nito more, but I, I don't think Ramos goes anywhere. I think the Mets liked him for a reason this off season, and they're not going to shop him um, unless, I mean, unless the pitchers are making more noise than we've heard. But we have heard some frustration from pitchers with um, Ramos. So, but the Mets also don't have much catcher depth. 
But to Rosario, I think I do think that's a legitimate chance that we see the Mets try him there because I mean with Nimmo's status completely up in the air, the Mets outfield depth right now is Conforto and while Smith and McNeil are hitting well, they're not really outfielders. So they center field could be a huge hole going into next year. So why not see if Rosario can handle that? I, I think that I think they would be wise in the second half to at least um, get him out there a little bit and see how he does out there. Interesting stuff, Michael. So what do you guys have going on at uh, Mets Miners, Mets Miners Online? What do you got coming up? Uh, obviously, uh, a lot of looking towards the future. I'm sure we'll see some guys being brought up. Uh, I know Anthony Kay, David Peterson. I don't know if those guys will get the call, but uh, it's a lot of looking towards the future over the next, uh, you know, four to six weeks. And, and then when August comes, really towards the off season. So unfortunately, it looks like it's going to be another, as the last two years have been, towards, uh, you know, wait till next year. Yeah, we'll have uh, me and my guys right now. We're working on our new top thirty prospects. With now that we've been waiting off to see if Allen was going to sign, so now that he's signed, we've been working on putting that together. So we'll have that out soon. And then on July second is the international free agency, and the Mets are signing one guy, Alex Ramirez, who's in the top thirty. And we'll we'll see you if they have any other surprises with uh, Omar kind of running that ship now. All right. Well, Michael, listen, it's been a pleasure catching up. Uh, wish it was a better uh, conversation about the team, but always uh, appreciate your insight, and uh, we'll see how the rest of the uh, the season goes when it comes to the manager and all these other interesting little nuggets. So be well, and we'll talk again, all righty? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot, Mike. That's Michael Mayer at Mike Mayer, MMO on uh, Mets Marized Online and Mets Miners. Let's uh, let's take a quick break. When we return, we'll wrap up. Final thoughts. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now that's Mets M-E-R-I-Z-E-D online.com and get Metsmerized today welcome back quick final thoughts I want to thank our special Michael Mayer of Metsmerized Online Mets Miners for joining us today of course I want to thank the good folks over at MetsmerizedOnline.com for all the support they give check out my first op-ed over at MetsmerizedOnline.com this week later on this week of course, you can check me out on Twitter, at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Happy Fourth of July. Be safe. Be well, everybody. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast very soon. Take care.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.